Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm Jesse P.S. and I'm the host of the Pod Awful Podcast. We're a comedy show where crazy shit happens. On my show, my girlfriend has called in to break up with me. I've been arrested live and the Secret Service actually investigated me over something I said in the show. We've had such crazy guests as... Mike Cap. Hello, Jesse. This is Andrew W.K. Jesse, this is Gail Gilligan. Jesse, how are you? And here are some of the glowing reviews we've received. Another crass amateur hour podcast. Not for me. Probably not for you either. This podcast once held my mother down and spit in her mouth. We are Pod Awful. We are live every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time over at podawful.tv. And you can check out our podcast anytime at podawful.com. We are, of course, a part of the Pod Awful channel, podcast network. Please check out all the shows over at podawful.net. And until you check us out, have an awful day. Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com booth. To pull off a job no one would ever dare, you need a team no one would ever believe. They did more to the syndicate in 27 minutes than anyone else ever did in 27 years. Paramount Pictures presents Hit. Starring Billy D. Williams as Nick, a top cop on the run. His hit team came in all sizes, all colors, and all pros. When they hit, they hurt. The Target, Nine Syndicate King. Time limit, 27 minutes to hit. Then split. Hit. Starring Billy D. Williams and Richard Pryor in Panavision and Technicolor. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Warning, this podcast is more addictive than heroin. Also along for the ride this week is Mr. Daniel Kramer. Good to be here. This week we're looking at the 1973 action film Hit, 
The film stars Billy D. Williams as federal agent Nick Allen. When Nick's sister takes a hot shot, he goes on the warpath for the people that put the smack on the streets. Rather than dealing with the two-bit hustlers and thugs, Nick takes it all the way to the source, making a real French connection with a group of drug kingpins in Marseille. Nick puts together a team of oddball assassins, including Richard Pryor as Mike Wilmer, a former frogman. Daniel, as our guest co-host this week, I will start with you. When did you first see Hit, and what were your thoughts? Well, I actually first saw Hit uh, on a pan and skin VHS. I think I might have been early 20s. So uh, I think I was in college when I saw it. And there was like a little shop in, in, uh, on, on South Street in, in Philly that, uh, uh, that had a copy. The first time I tried to watch it, I really couldn't get through it. At the time I first tried to watch it, I didn't realize that uh, I was missing probably about half the, half the actual picture. And I thought that John Alonzo's uh, camera work on it was... Uh, rather you know subpar and uh, and I, and I just kind of moved on from there I was I was really hoped to, uh, to buy it because I was a fan of of Sydney's uh, if Chris file and I'd seen uh, naked runner in Appaloosa uh, all of them actually in, in the, uh, the video pan scan format but I wasn't really impressed with a lot of other uh, journalists I'm a very film snobby kind of guy when it comes to how a film looks but uh but then again i saw it later when the dvd came out in, in 2012 and uh and i and it was like i oh i i was seeing it for the, for the very first time and i i was immediately very impressed with just how the film feels like it's written in a kind of jazz uh language where it's you know you have character of the the actors kind of riffing off each other and it feels then the whole production feels very run and gun but at the same time, it's this epic kind of thing, and and uh, it's I mean, actually, it's funny because when I when I told uh, when when Sydney uh, Fury came for the the taping sessions uh, for the for the book I'm doing on him, he came to New York twice, and the first time he came to New York, I guess it was like around this time last year. I told him like, yeah, you should really check out Hit, and uh, and and he had no idea that the film was as long as it was. He had no memory of it being two hours and fifteen minutes long. When I told him, he's like, how did we get away with that? How did Paramount let us get away with a two-hour, 15-minute genre uh, picture about a, just this kind of ragtag band of, uh, of you know, misfit, uh, uh, misfit toys uh, out to take it to the source uh, and, and, you know, get rid of the, the Marseille, you know, drug ring and, and everything. So uh, I wish I had this on tape because when he was seeing it again for the first time in 40 years, he kept on saying, wow. Wow. I can't believe I got away. Wow. Look at that shot. Wow. And then like he, he went, he got back to LA and ran the film and he said, you know, if I get nothing else out of doing this book with you, I will have gotten hit back again. I mean, I, I was just shocked at, at, at how different the experience was for me seeing it on this kind of crappy VHS that was uh, released in the early 90s. Even though I'm, I'm, a, I'm an inveterate VHS collector and not, uh, I have thousands upon thousands of VHS tapes, but, but seeing it finally like full screen, uh, or, I'm sorry, or rather widescreen, you know, 235 aspect ratio, it was, re it was really uh, oddly revelatory for me and, and uh, actually was the spur behind uh, um, my actually saying like someone needs to do a book about Sidney Fury and his work and his life and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So, so that's really where it began that and seeing uh, another film we made called uh, Sheila Levine is, is Dead and Living in New York on in widescreen both were kind of experiences where, uh, where I was like oh this is this is a very ballsy kind of approach to widescreen composition visual filmmaking and, uh, and I, saw, I saw themes emerging and re-emerging uh, throughout, throughout all his work 
As for Hit For Me, um, I didn't even know that this film existed, to be quite honest. I hadn't seen it before Mike sent it to me to take a look at for the show, and was right. kind of amazed, actually, when I was watching it, that Billy D. Williams was the lead. And I had to go back and kind of look and go, oh, yeah, that's right, he actually had... Uh, quite a decent career in the early '70s, and was a uh, you know a leading man before he became Lando Calrissian, which is you know my first memory of him was Star Wars. So it, it's an interesting film to watch, and especially watching it against, um, like you had mentioned in the opening, sort of the French Connection. To me, it seems that it has uh, a similar DNA to the, the the Friedkin film. And then also at the same time, another thing I think is interesting about it is is it has this broad cast, it has this broad ethnic cast, and it has subtitled sections because there's parts of it that are in French. And it doesn't feel like uh, a black exploitation film of that era. It seems like this film was written for whatever cast, and it just happened that the studio gave fury i guess the okay to go yes you can have billy d williams as your lead the poster art seems a little much in the flavor of the uh, black exploitation films of the era in the early 1920s but in terms of the actual production of the film and the style of the film it is definitely not a black exploitation film in that way when the film first was released uh, the critics were really in a muddle as to how whether or not they should categorize it as as um, a black exploitation product, and even now today, uh, there's this kind of conundrum that that uh, presents itself with people seeing it in in uh, today's life, where where it's just like, does this really fit in to within the confines of a genre that is very above board and out there when it when it comes to like, oh, it, it you know, you know, uh, a black exploitation film because it will present itself as such. A lot of the critics at the time one. Uh, I, I have I have a whole um, paragraph in the book about you know the one about the, the the critical reception of the film. One one person called it an oddity. Charles Champlin from the L.A. Times he, he wrote that uh, that 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 the, it was told with energy and dash, but also uh, was among the first of the people to approach uh, the fact that uh, really the onus was upon the audience to prove that it that it was a work independent of the whole black exploitation genre. Uh, and, and he kind of pointed out the fact that, you know, this is probably going to, and Paramount, and he pointed out the fact that Paramount probably doesn't know what to do with this film uh, or how to market it or how to, how to you know, kind of really hook into the, the niche that this, that the, the market that this film would, would best work within. So it's, it's a really, uh, it's an odd duck in, in, uh, in that regard. And, and uh, as to your comment about Billy Dee doing, uh, being the, the star of the film, uh, he had done Brian's song and, uh, uh, and he, he auditioned for the role of uh, Lewis McKay in, in Lady Sings the Blues. He was up against Paul Winfield. There was a kind of inner struggle between Barry Gordy and, and Sidney as to who would play uh, Lewis McKay. Sidney wanted Paul Winfield, and Barry Gordy wanted uh, Billy Dee. And the the interesting thing is that uh, the way that Barry convinced him is like, don't you want to give an exact quote? As I uh, actually, is like he said, don't you want to give little black girls their Clark Gable? Don't don't you want to give them a matinee idol and not just another good actor? Because I guess his his audition for a Lady was terrible, according to all sources, including Barry Gordy and, and Shelley Berger, who handled uh, Diana and a lot of the Motown people and, and Sydney, and that's one of the reasons why, why he didn't want to uh, to cast him in the role. So uh, when, when he fared well, and I mean, ladies, a lot of improv in that film. I mean, almost every scene, there's some 
form of uh, of the actresses riffing off, off of each other and just kind of uh, going and seeing where it takes them, even though it was, uh, I think, very well directed to kind of accomplish a, uh, a goal for each scene. But uh, but Hit is very much in that flavor. So and uh, and you will notice that a lot of there are a lot of people who were involved with Lady that were also involved with Hit. John Alonzo's carried over as DP. Sydney um, Melton, who was in Lady Sings of Blues, also carried over playing the uh, kind of uh, the other half of the of the uh, old Jewish couple who gets uh, recruited to, for, uh, as part of the the gang. Uh, Pryor is carried over, so it was kind of like so. As as Sydney said, it was the most natural thing in the world when he wanted when he brought up the idea to Alan Trustman. It's like this is an idea I have, it can and uh, and write it, you know. So he said it was the most natural thing in the world to carry over. The people, a lot of the people who had worked on Lady, to be in, in a, a part of Hit. So that's kind of how Billy D. And there was the, it's actually a Time article written about him at the time. It was called The Black Able. So they were really harping on him and really trying to build him up as as uh, the, the matinee idol of uh, of the kind of you know Black American crowd at the time. So it was really his first major you know, starring role beyond uh, Lady and Beyond Brian's song, and it was really his chance to shine. And and it didn't. I mean, the critics at the time. I, I said a lot of them didn't know what to make of it, and if they, if they didn't totally dismiss it, it was, it was kind of like a shrug in a way. So thus, he he, uh, he gives a, a really famous uh, supporting role in a great franchise like uh, Star Wars, which has made him a lot of money uh, over the years, no doubt. But uh, um, uh, but yeah, it was it was kind of his uh, opportunity to prove himself as a, a leading man who is front and center in pretty much every scene except for the French, which. I was grateful to see uh, were were subtitled in, in the original language because you hate French actors uh, when they when they talk American like this and of course do you know there are many things in the film that I that I'm very intrigued choices made that I'm intrigued by I guess for me I remember seeing this one on the video shelf very often and it had that really cheesy cover I'm sure it's the one that that you oh, saw yeah. Daniel with the Billy D holding the bazooka and the big explosion oh, behind yeah. him and everything. <laughs> And I think had I rented this back then, expecting a black exploitation picture, I would have been really kind of cheesed off when it came to this. It, it reminds me of uh, when a friend of mine went and watched Detroit 9000 and thought it was going to be a black exploitation film. And obviously, you know, Rob and I talked about that, that that is not black exploitation. This one kind of starts in that vein as far as starting off in the ghetto and you've got the right. – the sister and her drug dealer boyfriend and uh, just it, it kind of has those trappings. But I think within like 10 minutes, we're already breaking from that and kind of going into this whole wide world of drugs and government agencies and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of nice that it does. It's, it's nice that it, it has this kind of bigger worldview. It reminded me a little bit of the split where – we had Jim Brown playing um, Parker in that, and it really didn't matter. I mean, they kind of tailored that a little bit more for Brown and made his character, McLean, I think it was, made him more black. But really, they don't seem to care if it's Billy D and uh, Richard Pryor playing these roles or not, especially, I mean, just their their names, like Mike and Nick. It's just like, yeah, these aren't like what I would think of as early 70s black guy names kind of thing. But it's kind of cool that they don't care and that they're just, it's almost like 
race neutral when they're playing this, but and that can be good, that can be bad. But for me, I was like, it's like, hey, these are two ass kicking guys, and I'm really glad to see them. And it's they're not making a big deal about stuff, and there's not like this kind of a problem when it comes to the black guy who's you know kind of working on this relationship with this uh, white woman. It's just, you know, they, they don't really enter into that conversation at all. And, you know, for better or worse, I, I thought it really kind of worked. And also tonally, the way that it's put together, especially that opening is very sort of on the street, neorealist kind of docudrama kind of thing. Because when you watch it the first time and you put it in, I don't even, I don't even think you get credits on the front. It's just this guy and the girl and they're in the car and then they get the heroin and then they, you know, they do the drugs and GODs and it's very, it, it's shot very sort of almost documentary like and, um, things really sort of maintain that way. It really has this sort of fly on the wall feel. Um, there's not a lot of really, um, there's not a lot of flash to it in that way. It's really kind of stripped down and, very easy to take in in that way. You talking about that really reminds me of the scene where Billy D. Williams' character is talking to his friend who's on the police force. Billy D.'s on a government uh, force. They never really say what it is, you know, if it's CIA, FBI, which is kind of nice that they don't have to label it. But he's talking to his friend who's a cop and who's really into hamburgers. And then you see the cop going down and busting this guy. And the, the way that they shoot it is all through this like really long lens zooming in. And you just hear the audio from forever away. Like you can uh, overhear this conversation. And I like that kind of, you know, the, the use of the zoom lens. You're right. There is this kind of neorealism type thing that they're doing in this. Right. And actually the, there was uh, another similar film that was released a month before hit that was a black exploitation treatment of this very, almost the very same uh, story. It was called Golden's War, which was uh, directed by, by Ossie Davis. At the time, there were a couple comparisons made between the, those two films. I mean, Golden's War is very, you know, very urban. It doesn't really leave the, the confines of this kind of, uh, you know, Harlem ghetto kind of backdrop. Most of the characters in that film are black, and they're trying to um, uh, achieve the, the downfall of the, of the higher-ups within the, the kind of drug trade. In that sense, uh, and, and actually, Gordon's War beat Hit to um, theaters. Gordon's War came out in August of 1973, and Hit came out in, in September of, of 1973. So there was, so they came out like just within a month of each other. So it's interesting when you kind of juxtapose the two films, Gordon's War and Hit, and seeing that Hit begins with this kind of, uh, as you're saying, you know, stripped down uh, elliptical cutting quality, where it's cutting between kind of the masters and the, and the, and the servants uh, in between Marseille and, and Washington, uh, D.C. And also, uh, what's very interesting, it's a very small thing, and actually they're never like title cards to uh, um, establish where we are at, at any point in the film. I mean, we, we, we jump from Dick Harbor in Washington to Los Angeles to think one point is that we're in Chicago and then, and then another point we're in Washington, D.C., and then we're in Marseille. But he uses this kind of uh, trope of uh, uh, license plates a great deal, and that is kind of a motif that gets uh, established. So, so it becomes this kind of very efficient thing of taking us from one place to another, and, and you know, the, the, and it's the very nature of the film being kind of, uh, you know, a lot of shots were grabbed. I talked to, uh, talked to many of the people involved in the production, including uh, Billy D and including uh, uh, Gray Fredrickson, who is the um, executive producer of the film, uh, who also worked on a lot of movies like Godfather and a lot of a, a couple other of Sydney's films. Uh, but but they but they 
often talk about the fact that shots were just grabbed uh, and and they had no permits for a lot of what they were what they were shooting. And I think audiences now have uh, read uh, recent uh, reviews and write-ups, including one. Uh, and there's a new bio of, of Richard Pryor, where the writers of the of the book uh, really talk up uh, uh, in one paragraph, talk up hit saying like, oh, get, you have to find the audience it, it, it deserves, and and you know, and it's really a lot of interesting stuff going on and everything. So I think it's getting in a sense a kind of quiet reappraisal. There are like things that are at odds with each other that make it very kind of a, a pleasing confluence of, of, of uh, many things happening at once in the film, which is what really intrigues me as the, as the person writing about it in, in this book. I'm a big fan of this whole idea of getting the team together, and I love movies kind of like the you know the dirty the dirty dozen does it pretty quickly, right. but there are other films where you know you spend half the film getting the team together, and this is along those lines. This is more of an Ocean's Eleven kind of thing, and really, as I was watching it, I was reminded a lot of a heist film, even though it doesn't end up being a heist you know, that they're going after. But I really kind of like that they take the time to introduce each one of these characters and that they don't give you really these kind of easy answers when it comes to, well, I think you should join this team because this happened and this happened and this other thing happened and that's exactly why you should join us. You know, there's not that kind of real laying out of the cards. You know, they really kind of play it close to the vest when it comes to the way that we're learning little bits about each of these characters. And I even like the way that the order that they pick up these characters in, and there are some where you know more that, about them than the others. I would say the Richard Pryor character, you get to know a little bit more uh, than um, some of the other ones. The prostitute character, you learn a little bit more about her. There's the one guy who's kind of the assassin kind of guy, white guy. Don't really learn a whole lot about him, but he ends up being kind of a dick anyway, which is okay. But I love that yeah, kind it, of way that they they pace this thing out. Actually, in an early chapter title, when, uh, when originally in my in a very early chapter of the book, each film had a, or each important film had its own chapter title, which uh, my my editor took me to task for. But the, the the chapter title of the of the chapter on hit originally was called the Dirty Half Dozen. <laughs> uh, so it was very so yeah because it is very much in line with the kind of recruitment phase of the whole operation and, and the, I mean the whole enterprise is kind of uh, implausible in its way but I mean I, I mean I, I don't really care about the I mean I'm I'm, I'm able to suspend the you know, disbelief because it's uh, I don't know it's just it's uh, a lot of the just the kind of outrageous uh, recruitment of the of the uh, the old couple uh, uh, Melton and Janet Brand who would ironically go on to play the parents of, of Sheila Levine and, and, and Sheila Levine uh, is dead in New York City so had another carryover from a previous uh, Fury film, uh, his next film, they, they were also cast as the same kind of couple. I mean, there was, there was no character change at all. They, they just changed the names, and it's, it's the same people essentially. Yeah, I mean, I know, just the whole recruitment phase, and, and uh, you know, it, it is very much in the in the mode of of the kind of classic Motley Crew uh, genre picture of the time, I guess. I like the old couple. I think the old couple's great because I don't think that it's. Um expressed exactly what their background is, but I got the feeling through the conversation that they were maybe former resistance people during World War II when it came to uh, the Jews in Germany and maybe France or something. It was it was just kind of interesting that they get recruited for their expertise because they had had some sort of previous like anti-government uh, training <laughs> a long time ago. One of my favorite moments is such a little moment, but it, it's so charming. I find it. It's when uh, 
when the old couple, they're, they're kind of practicing their running, uh, to, to, they're trying to get within a certain time, being timed by Billy Dee, and they're huffing and puffing. And, and uh, Billy Dee says, he calls uh, the, the old lady, uh, he calls Janet Brent's character Bubbola, I think, or, <laughs> or Mamala. Uh, and I don't know, I just found that so charming. And I don't know, it's, I mean, it is a kind of, uh, because what, what's interesting is that uh, Sydney was the first director in line to direct The Godfather the year before, uh, talking to Al Ruddy, who produced The Godfather and had produced Little Foss and Big Halsey. They brought that film eight days under schedule because, you know, Sydney kind of patented a multi-camera operation, uh, which hadn't been used uh, in a major Hollywood uh, picture before. So uh, as a present to Al Ruddy for bringing in Little Foss and Big Halsey on time, that gave him The Godfather to, to produce, and, and he requested that Sydney direct the film. Of course, uh, uh, there are other directors who were interviewed, including Arthur Penn and everything, but Al Ruddy was really adamant about Sidney uh, uh, Fury, and ultimately Coppola's uh, Italian heritage won the day. But what's interesting about Hit is that uh, it's like Fury is fashioning his own kind of crime family, in a sense. There's even a kind of inside joke towards the end of the film where where um, Sid Melton's character is in a, a movie theater in Marseille, and playing on the screen is uh, uh, I think it's El Padrino, which is the which is the, the overseas Godfather. So you see the Godfather logo on the on the movie screen and the movie within the movie, and we hear but we hear uh, Lalo Schifrin's uh, percussion main title theme playing over it. So it's kind of uh, uh, I don't know I always figure that is kind of like a a wink, wink to himself. That, you know, they, you know, they they patched me up on Godfather. Okay, I'll make my own crime family, and here we go. It is them, uh, you know, and Flagrante Delicto. Uh, you know, just kind of uh, carrying out all these all these hits, uh, you know, for them, for themselves, and you know, just kind of take it. But because the the, the core group does become very uh, familial uh, to me, it seems like. And uh, and the night before they they are about to carry out the, their tasks. We catch each of them, you know, kind of in alone moments. You know, there's an old couple, they're in bed together and they're sharing a kind of moment. And there's a guy ordering a French hamburger, the um, Warren Camerling's character wearing a French hamburger. And then there's Paul Hampton with a prostitute. And then, you know, I mean, at that point, what I love about it is that you really uh, somewhat, uh, even though Paul Hampton is a, is a kind of a-hole or develops into that, as we find out, uh, you know, he, he doesn't really betray anyone in the group. But uh, you really feel... Uh, that that even brought away in the film where they feel like a core familial group of country. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Attracted killers. And it is in a sense, uh, and, and I can't help but think that, uh, you know, Sydney laughing in the, while, while he was cutting the film, he's like in the, in the editing room. 
and they're putting this kind of godfather joke uh, you know, towards the end of the film uh, and a very kind of uh, poorly composited image of the godfather title screen. And I can't, I can just imagine him like just laughing and saying, and it's kind of laughing that to himself that it was kind of an inside joke. He had, he had the opportunity to kind of do it for himself and his own narrative that wasn't uh, engineered by, uh, and, and, and according to him, Paramount just kind of let him do this very under the radar type of film. No one was checking in really with, with the crew or like the, the cast and crew. It was just kind of like, you know, it was a very freeing kind of uh, on set experience being allowed to do this kind of under the radar and, and the movie just kind of was released. It had no kind of fanfare, nothing, nothing really to, to speak of in the, in the promotional department, even though I think the poster is pretty, uh, pretty badass. But, uh, um, you know, it's, it's so I, I, that's kind of, uh, my, my theory is that, uh, you know, he was fashioning the film as a kind of his take on the, on the cinematic crime family in a sense. Yeah, I don't know if you guys feel that way at all, but yeah. yeah, it was funny. As I was watching it, I was saying to myself, you know, oh, this is like the killing of the, the heads of the five families. And then when he right. goes into the movie theater and that Paramount logo comes up, I was just like, is this what I think it is? <laughs> <laughs> so that that was a nice little nod there going on. And I, I do like the way that they kind of clean up everything at the end and just that, you know, you're kind of keeping track. You're like, okay, they have nine people that they're going after here. Now, how many people have they gotten so far and who's going to be this guy? And, you know, it's not this kind of outrageous, um, the deaths aren't too crazy. They all seem to kind of make sense. I mean, there is that kind of outrageousness as far as this group of Americans going over to France and taking care of these drug families and all that. The one of the things that I don't want to forget to talk about is the way that Nick kind of is on the inside. The Billy Dee Williams character is an insider at first as a government agent and then quickly goes on the outside. He is quickly kind of disavowed by the people that he's working for to the point where two of the guys that he's working with are constantly coming after him and, and trying to stop him to the point of trying to put a bullet in him, which I kind of like right. that way that he's – um, been ostracized and, and uh, kind of doing his own thing. I mean, taking the law into his own hands, but in the the best way possible. And he's not like this kind of vigilante, dirty, hairyish kind of stereotype. He's very, very calm about the whole thing, and he's very, very well planned when it comes to exactly how he's going to do this. I mean, the guy's got a list, you know, and, and you know he's very organized when he's got a list. He's got that long kind of. Uh, uh index of uh you know or people who can be made vulnerable by uh by, by blackmail uh most of the time but uh, um it's also interesting uh i wanted to quickly mention that uh sight and sound reviewed the dvd of the film and uh, it was actually a very nice uh review and, and it was a nice kind of reappraisal of the film after after these these decades but uh but the author called attention to, uh, uh, as you said, the kind of echo of the ending movement of The Godfather in which all these kind of assassination scenarios are kind of cut against each other. But yeah, I mean, he's, it's the Nick Allen, uh, character is very, uh, um, he's never as, as, uh, sympathetic as, as one would, uh, um, uh, expect him to be. He can be, uh, a downright probably bastard at times, uh, the way that he kind of, uh, manipulates the, the people involved into doing his will and to kind of carrying out these, you know, these tasks and, you know, the way that he, uh, you know, occasional scenes where, you know, we see him almost, uh, one track mindedly and, and shamelessly, uh, just kind of, uh, rearranging the, the, the whole, uh, scenario to, 
you know, to suit his his needs and his and but the, but the whole thing with Zui Hall and uh, um, I'm forgetting the other guy's name, but uh, but but the two Fed agents, the two kind of the bumbling guys who are put on on his tail, that that, that is a kind of amusing side you know subplot. Uh, um, and I knew I knew Zui Hall from. Uh, um, Fortune in Men's Eyes, the the the, the adaptation of the, the MGM adaptation of the play that was made in Canada. Uh, so it was interesting seeing him uh, not as a kind of uh, uh, gay prison uh, prisoner in this you know, Canadian uh, um, you know penitentiary, but where we're actually seeing him as a kind of uh, uh, bumbling character next to uh, I'm actually uh, overlooking the other guy's name. Uh, but uh, but yeah, this, it's kind of seeing that I mean the, the whole movie doesn't it takes its time to play out and and he and uh, Sydney has told me that uh, uh, Argyle uh, Nelson the editor and I were on this on the picture for seven or eight months versus uh, my normal uh, five months or, or six months at most um, and he said I'm happy it didn't get swallowed up by the guys uh, at Paramount saying speed it up speed it up because it could have been, you know, butchered if they didn't allow the movie to breathe, and 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 the whole and all these scenes that just kind of they play out longer than we're used to seeing them play out a lot of the time, including the kind of bumbling feds who were after him. So it's so seeing it kind of uh, a, a, a genre piece that's un, as unusually paced as as this film is is uh, it's it's really an anomaly uh, in my opinion, and uh, um, you know it's so there there are you know, like I said a lot of things happening that uh, people were probably. Uh, take notice of if they if uh, they saw it more than uh, than it is out there now I think which uh, I think it's I think now that it's out on on, on Blu-ray and, and on DVD again it's uh, it's an opportunity I'm not sure how many people and because they use the same exact bazooka cover with the explosion in the background as opposed to the original poster art which would have been great for the cover but uh, but yeah they use that kind of they essentially use the VHS cover uh, for this new uh, release from all the films which purchased a lot of Paramount's back catalog titles. How many people will, will pick it up based on the cover? But, uh, but yeah, it, 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 it does present a kind of, to me, a hidden gem, even though, you know, it's people will, will kind of, uh, will, might call it quaint or whatever. And I know that uh, uh, Tarantino, as I mentioned in uh, my original article uh, that I wrote about Sydney, and uh, I wrote it in May 2012, uh, I know that Tarantino owns a print of the film and is very fond of it. I mean, what? I mean, I guess you could ask what what print doesn't he own at this point? But and what seventies genre picture doesn't he like? But uh, uh, but yeah, I know that I know that uh, I read he's he's uh, said some very nice things about how unusual it is, and you can kind of see it emerge in, in the, the kind of talky nature of uh, Pulp Fiction and, and a lot of the, the canonical Tarantino titles because there's a lot of talk and a lot of kind of strange pacing uh, devices that lead up to payoffs, like actual uh, action genre payoffs. scenes. That's kind of sort of influenced in a sense in that, you know, it's, it's, it takes a lot to build up to a payoff in, in any given, you know, action set piece, I guess, which is another interesting aspect of the film, I think. Yeah, the transfer is beautiful, but I, I really don't like that Olive doesn't do any kind of special things when it comes to the films. I mean, these yeah. are right there with the kind of Warner Archives stripped down kind of stuff, and it feels a little like they're cheating sometimes. I mean, especially we covered um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers a few months ago, and seeing that on Olive's DVD or Blu-ray release, it was just like, really? You know, nothing? Not even a, like a freaking preview? Not a commentary? Not a documentary? I mean, I, I don't know how much 
promotional material hit might have had, but at least have, you know, the radio spot or a preview or anything. But yeah, that was, it's tough. I like that they're doing this stuff, but at the same time, it's like, come on guys, just put a little bit more effort into this, you know, go ahead and, and at least give me the old poster image on the back or as an insert on the inside or something. But yeah, it was nice to see it in the widescreen version at least. And it did look absolutely gorgeous. And you're right, there are a lot of kind of Tarantino-isms in there, especially uh, the whole thing with the hamburger. I could definitely see that kind of being an influence. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, I think oftentimes uh, uh, in terms of commentary tracks, uh, I mean, you know, Sydney has done a commentary track for It Chris, uh, the, the two Cliff Richard movies he's, he's done in the uh, um, early 60s in, in, uh, in, in England. Uh, and... Um, I think for commentary. Oh yeah, and, and he also did a commentary track for for Ladies Sings the Blues. But uh, um, but he's been kind of out of the loop when it comes to. I, I know that they've approached him for uh, um, a couple other things, and he's he's very. As I think as I think he told me on the phone, he's a very forward kind of thinker, uh, and doesn't uh, and doesn't like uh, looking back. It was kind of a, um, a chore in a sense to finally get him hooked into doing the the book. And uh, and and you know, I'll get into this later. It's largely thanks to his friend Paul Lynch, who directed Prom Night, that the the book is finally coming into into uh, uh, you know, reality. Boys and Company C, which uh, uh, came out uh, on DVD a couple years ago, uh, features a commentary dr- uh, track by uh, Andrew Stevens. When I told uh, Sydney that it's funny, uh, he's, and I said it's like, oh, and he's like, oh, Boys and Company C is now. He's like, no, it's out, it's out. He's like, it's out. Who put it out? And he's like, Hen Street Video. Hen Street Video. I didn't hear about that. And he was like, yeah. And they had they had Andrew Stevens doing a commentary. He's like, why didn't they call me to do a commentary? Because that's like. Oh, and the film that he's uh, one of the two films that he's the proudest of, I think he told me. But uh, um, but he got uh, slightly bent out of shape. Was like, why didn't they call me to do the the Boys and Company C commentary track? But uh, and now he he would have done the, the hit commentary. He wouldn't have done it before I told him to see it again. Kind of kept himself uh, more out of the limelight than I think a lot of uh, you know, directors uh, um, might have for I mean, particularly for features on on DVDs. Um, particularly considering the breadth and depth of the number, the sheer number of films he's done. I mean, Entity, there's no kind of commentary. There's kind of a little thing on Doris Spicer, the real-life lady who was uh, ghost-raped. But other than that, you know, there's really not, you know, nothing uh, that uh, he's done in terms of, uh, you know, DVD, even though I'd love to see um, uh, a commentary track for uh, The Leather Boys, which is my favorite film of his. But uh, it's an out-of-print Kino disc that's been out of print for like six or seven years now. The fact that Chris File is out of print is a, is a real uh, real uh, amazing thing I, that, that I really can't believe. You, you have to go to Amazon and a used copy is like uh, 35 or $40 or you know, somewhere in that range. So I want to take a break and, and play the uh, interview that we did with Sidney Fury just because, yeah, it is amazing. He's an amazing character. But before that, I, I do want you to tell the story that you were going to tell about the uh, shooting of Hit. The producer of the film was a guy named Harry Korshak, uh, who was the son of, of Sidney Korshak, who was, uh, um, he was a notorious uh, figure in, in Hollywood, I guess. He was, uh, you know, he was kind of a power broker at Paramount and had represented Jimmy Hoffa and and a bunch of uh, characters. Uh, so, so it was his first film as producer. He he wanted to get into the film uh, business, and his father kind of uh, orchestrated that. Uh, and and, and uh, it's 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 no mystery. So uh, 
So when they went to shoot uh, part of the film in, in Washington D.C., they were just kind of grabbing things, and you know, as, as I said, and uh, and they and you know they were just little like kind of B-roll shots of and. And now uh, when they got back to their hotel that night, the Teamsters were there waiting for them and said, that, oh, we know you guys are shooting. We'll meet you here tomorrow at, at 8 a.m. And they were very kind of, uh, you know, they said, okay, we'll, we'll meet you. You don't meet us. We'll, 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 uh, or, or, I'm sorry, you, you, you meet us at our time and we're going to work with you. And they said, well, no, we're not, we're not shooting. We're just looking at locations. So no, 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 no. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We know you're shooting. We're, we'll, we'll meet you here in the lobby tomorrow. And blah blah blah. blah. So, so uh, Gray Fredrickson told me this uh, story. Uh, looked at uh, uh, Harry Korshak in Sydney and said, "Hey guys, we're screwed." We don't have enough money to pay. This is a little low budget, uh, you know, second unit kind of operation. We don't have money to pay Teamsters or anything like that. Is it we're 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 done? Uh, so uh, Gray uh, said, "Harry, can you call your father and maybe he can do something?" Uh, so uh, the very next morning, these Teamsters show up in the hotel, meek as meek as lambs. And they said, oh, we were sorry. We had no idea who you guys were. They listen, anything you want, you got it. You have, you have a police escort out there. You have trucks. You have whatever you want. It's on the house. And uh, <laughs> Fredrickson and Cindy are like, damn, Harry, you, your dad's got some juice. And he goes, yeah, it's good to have a powerful father every now and then. Uh, it comes in handy. But, uh, but yeah, it kind of, you know, is in the, in the whole spirit of the fact that the film, they were just, as I said, grabbing things a lot of the time uh, and uh, just kind of making things happen uh, last minute and uh, sending see locations and uh, say like, okay, let's, let's grab a shot here, uh, as, as as he would do in uh, other films like uh, Foss and Hall, the crew members recall that uh, they'd be on their way and then, and then he'd say, okay, stop the caravan. We're going to do the scene right here. He's a kind of uh, element of, of uh, live... Uh, dangerousness about him that he just kind of sat down and said we're going to do it right here and this is the way it's going to be but it it was very much in that flavor even though the lady wasn't so much in that even though there was a lot of improv but it was kind of uh, uh, using actually one critic said that uh, uh, at the time that it seems like the film was made up as it goes along to, sh- to suit the the locations that were that are used in the background I don't know I, I think it adds to the charm of the whole affair but anyway all right, we are going to take a break and play an interview with Sydney Fury, and I want to apologize in advance for the sound quality of this one, folks. Hopefully you can stick with it, because I think it's definitely worth it. They're 12 miles of bad road, and now they have a microphone and their own show. It's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast, the official podcast of DailyGrindhouse.com. 
Sorry, G. You tell that bitch who sent you here. How sorry I am I can no longer be her friend. And the man called Perry. I'm the one that killed Mungin, whooped Tuesday, and put Wims in the hospital. All the birds did a tell five did not the birds, Sarah Jones, son. Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation cinema and beyond. Featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forrester, Brian Trenchard-Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. <clears throat> well, uh, we'll get him someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. Well, let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. It's the Five Quarterly Women's Social Club. It's not on my phone. Well, he I'll tell from you that. It's not on fucking my phone. Now, the ball was uh, in you your should've. court. No, I fucking sent you a text back. You yeah, but I never got it. What do you want me to tell you? I never and got you it. you call to confirm. God, aren't you tired of this NPR feel-good radio wishy-washy, everyone learns something and feels great about it crap? Not me. I get ones that want to fuck up their ass, and I like to do that. What I present to you is chaos. And I get ones who want to be slapped around a bit, and I do that too. And you will laugh. It's a comedy show. It's a comedy show where you will actually laugh. I would love to lick your pony vagina. It's a by costly women's social club. All right, well, to be blunt with you, I'm thinking that we should contact the police because it sounds like you have some really nasty situation going on. I'm sorry? We want to pray that two people we don't like get cancer. Why would you pray for someone to get cancer? Because we don't like it. So if you hate podcasts and you're sick of all the shit that's out there, listen to my show, The Bi-Quarterly Women's Social Club. I'm the host, Chris Wilding. Facebook.com slash bi-quarterly or bqwsc.com where you can find out everything about us, listen to episodes, and get our live show schedule. Hope to see you there. Seacrest out. Have a good night, motherfucker. <laughs> How was it growing up in Toronto? It was interesting. You know, it was a complete wasteland in the days of radio, right? That's remember, before the internet, before television. So you really felt you were in Toronto. When you go to Toronto now, you feel like you're in the United States, right? It's like the whole world has changed because of the Internet. There's no question. There are no hicks anymore. So that famous variety uh, headline, what was that? Hicks, sticks, nicks, picks. So hicks in the sticks are going to see boogies, right? But now there are no hits. They know everything. They know who's sleeping with who, who's in, who's out, what. You know, it's 
Maybe that's good because you can't fool people as much now, I hope. So how did a, a young boy from Toronto get into the movie business back in the day? There it is. According to my mother, I was born in 33, so I'm 80. And in 1939, we were visiting the Niagara Falls, she said. And I do remember the movie. They took me to my first movie. It was MGM's Captain's Courageous. And she said that uh, not long afterwards, I was six, I knew there was a director. How I knew, I don't know. But she said, I'm going to direct movies, which is interesting. But I guess six-year-old kids today all say they're going to make movies. And, and here's the joke. And they do. The tools are there. There were no tools then. Eight millimeter, you know, 16. So I always wanted to, always wanted to do that because it was moving. Maybe it's because I was in Toronto, which on Sunday there were no movies. There were you, you could only have a drink in a hotel. Restaurants didn't serve booze. Uh, a beer, you'd go to a beer hall. It was like something out of another planet. And I think movies were an incredible escape from the dreariness and everything, you know. But I, I think movies just do that to people, as music then did in the next generation or two, you know. And it was surprising because there was no TV, no DVDs, nothing, right? You'd actually go to the movies and what an event it was. Oh, my God. What an event. And, I, and you never get over it. It's an immaturity you, that you never, ever, ever get over. It's childlike fantasy. Just to get in the mood for this, I watched an old movie right before. I'm actually working on a script. I said, no, no, I'm not going to be working when I have to make the phone call. I will watch a, uh, I'll watch a movie and just get into the make-believe mood. But, but it's been a long time and I, um, nothing has changed except I'm older. And the only thing that's changed is I have more energy. I have a lot of energy because why not, you know? I just don't want to be some old fart sitting around living in the past. So that's why, segue to Daniel's book, he couldn't reach me. He tried to. I said, I don't want to hear about a book. I cannot look into the past. I don't want it. I don't want to. I'm still trying to deal with the present, right, and make it meaningful. And then I guess we had a mutual friend who, uh, or through his mutual friend who had a friend, knew someone I knew, an actor, and they called me up and said, look, this is a rare bird. He makes his own movies. He went to film school. He was going to be a rabbi. He's just an amazing guy. And I had read on his blog uh, something about me, that an actor in my last film said, you've got to read this. And I knew he could write, and he could write well. So we had a phone call, and I said, okay, let's start it. And uh, it's amazing. You know, it's been a great, great process. And the joy of it is you can at least go back and relive memorable experiences on movies because he wants to know all the goodies on the movie. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in talk who was doing who to what and how they were and all those things. Not so much about the movie itself because it's done. You know, the stuff you can't reshoot it, you can't remake it. It's been, it's, it's an interesting road and he's an, I don't know how well you know him, but he's an incredible person. And I say now as one of my closest friends. And what's interesting about it is I know how he feels about many of the movies, but I don't want to read any of the book until it comes out. I just, I don't want to know where he criticizes some or others. I trust him and, and, and it'll be honest. 
you know, that's the good part of it. Real briefly, I wanted to ask you when, you know, how you initially made that jump to, to make a dangerous age. How I did it was my parents, who were immigrants to Canada, wanted me to go to college. I had no desire for college. They offered nothing I wanted, right? I said, okay. I picked a school, which then was called Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh, that had a drama department, and it offered a BFA, which means you only took film subjects with the odd and English, a psychology, history, it's a one, a one a semester or something. It was a professional school. So I conned them into sending me there, and I spent four great years studying the theater uh, and enjoyed it. And actually, it was a playwriting major because directing majors had a hack, and I was much too embarrassed <laughs> to get on a stage. And I think the playwriting was the best thing I ever did because structure is what movies are. And I came back to Toronto. I was 21, graduated, and went to see some people at CBC. That was Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, had TV, and uh, that was about the only place you could knock on a door. There weren't any doors. And the guy said, we have nothing for you, uh, but... Uh, you have studied drama in the States, and we want to keep in Canada. So I've got an idea. We need to buy 50 movies, at least 50 movies for our afternoon movie channel. And we've been offered 200. Somebody's got to run those 200 movies and pick 50. That was my job. And they were all like Hollywood independents. They weren't studio pictures. So they'd been shot, most of them, on the streets of L.A. And, oh, man, that was film school because we didn't have one film course at Carnegie Tech, not one. So my thing was seeing 200 movies. Wow. And, boy, I could see from the independents where the lights were because it was all hot. You could tell. But I could see setups. I could see how they do it. And uh, so I fell in love with indie movies and L.A., <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm um, right. L.A. of this was 1954. Going into 54, 55. And I ran all the movies, told them the 50 to buy. And then I said, gee, I'd love to make something. He said, well, the only thing we got is we have public service announcements for different government departments. The CBC was government. So the first shooting I ever did was how to put out your campfire. <laughs> so they threw me up to uh, north of Toronto to what's called cottage country. And we went on a campsite and shot and came back. And then all the editors who were editing this at CBC were all mad at me. They said, we're all waiting for a break. And you, you're not even an editor. And you got to direct I then started writing, and I thought, okay, I'm going to write a movie, and I did about a personal experience, A Dangerous Age. I actually sold it to CBC as a television drama, you know, changed it around so they could shoot it. It was a, a live show, and they did that, and it got my confidence going. Actors 
was saying my dialogue and it sounded normal. Then I raised about 25,000 bucks, 29 to be exact. And I knew I'd met someone who knew how to shoot film and he knew a sound guy. And I, and like they do movies today, four of us went out and made a dangerous age. It was shot in 10 days and it was 35 millimeter film, an Aeroflex. And it sold in the States. Somebody bought it. I don't know where it ever played. It played in England in an art house and got rave reviews that it, believe me, it did not deserve. The headline was only 24 when I made it, but what a filmmaker. <laughs> it was primitive. I didn't even know that when two people are looking at each other and each have a close-up, one looks to the right and one looks to the left. I have people looking in the same direction because I hadn't been to film school, right? But I learned in editing all about that. I learned right from doing it. And um, and then what was so interesting is uh, that film, which would have been lost, for some reason, uh, Government of Canada, their film archives, picked it up, preserved it, and exhibited it. And when recently, for Daniel, I needed a copy, they could send me one. Uh, my second film, which I made in Toronto the next year, A Cool Sound from Hell, there isn't an existing uh, print copy anything except British Film Institute has a negative and they think a magnetic track and Daniel hunted it down and we're hoping they're going to make us a copy. I told Daniel, I don't want to see it. You can review it. <laughs> Another 10-day wonder, which costs twice as much. So I learned something about filmmaking, right? Right. The cost goes up. You made quite a string of films in England. How did you manage that kind of jump across the pond? My theory which I think was good, was that if I went to Hollywood, how the hell could I break in? I already had seen 200 indie movies, and I knew it was crowded down here. The fact you'd made a movie was no big deal. But England, because then Canadians were considered British subjects, we could go to England, we could vote, we could work, no work permit, nothing. And I said, uh, and I'd written a script, and a producer in New York said, let's make it in London. I said, great. He gave me a ticket. Many, I never saw him again for the rest of my life. <laughs> he never showed up. But I was, but I was there, right? I was ready to go home. And uh, this is pretty funny. I was ready to go home. And uh, about two days before, I had a family with me. My assistant director, who was English, British, Cockney, who had been in Toronto on my second film. He was at Pinewood at the bar, and he's talking to some production manager who was producing a movie for an American and said, geez, I can't find a director. I've got 3,500 pounds, which was, what, about 5,000 in my budget. And the AD said, I got a guy who'll do it for 1,500. I said, great. I got the job, just like that. It was crazy. And that was the famous Dr. Blood's coffin. It was in color, and uh, we went on location in Cornwall, which is right at the tip of England, nearest point to the United States. And it had, uh, I don't remember, I think it was 15 days, so that was a luxury. And that's how it happened, you know, it's that crazy thing. I was curious about um, the shooting of the Ipcris file. I mean, it's such a amazing film. What kind of memories do you have about that one? Only good ones. I can remember every day. Isn't that wild? There are certain things you you don't you don't forget. And here's why. When I got 
the uh, Harry Saltzman asked me to do give this file. He had seen the Leather Boys, which was very much in the style of his Woodfall pictures. You know, he was the backer of Tony Richardson and Carol Rice, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Taste of Honey. And um, he had seen that and he came to me and I read the script and honestly, it was God awful. It was horrible, horrible. But he told me it had Michael Caine. And I knew Michael from a restaurant that we all went to, and he was always with Terrence Stamp and people. They were young, they were always laughing, and they had beautiful women with them, or girls, I guess, right? And I sort of hated them. <laughs> and I remember I'd always get drunk and say, I want to punch that guy in the face, right? And when I met him, I said, look, before we start, Michael, I used to see you at the White Elephant, and I really wanted to take it, you know, plug you. And that started us knowing, Michael, that's the best thing you could have said. The worst would have been, I've always admired your work, right? And so I said, so tell me, what do you think of the script? He said, it's a load of codswallop. I remember the word. That's a very East End British expression. Like, it's a load of shit, right? I said, what are we going to do? He said, you know, we got we to gotta give it ambiance. And he did use the French word. We have to give it a, a feel. And we got to get it rewritten. So we went to Harry and said, we need a writer. Because I think the script we read had been written by a director from a book that didn't give the hero a name. It was moody, very moody book, Len Dayton's book. But it, it, it didn't have a narrative, right? Not really. So we got a couple things. We got a writer and we got the guy who would put up the money for the book for the Harry, a guy named Charles Tasher, an interesting guy, knew nothing about movies, but like so many of those guys, they're so wise, so wise. And he had sold on television, Charles Antel Formula 7. He'd never seen a bald sheep. So if you use this lanolin in your head, It'll grow hair. It was very famous in the 50s. And he just had a natural instinct for storytelling. And we were a brains trust. And we worked on the script and worked. And then someone else came in. And this was all before shooting. And then in shooting, writing was still going on. So we shot the movie in, I'd say, direct continuity. I don't know what word you'd use. But scene one was one, two, three. In order. We shot it in order because we knew we were changing as we went. And as we would see things each day, oh, yeah, we should do this with the characters. So it was the most creative experience I have ever had in my entire life. And Michael is the greatest actor. There are no bad stories about Michael King. He is every director who's ever worked with him says the same. He comes to work. He's funny. He makes jokes. The other actors can't complain because Michael's happy. And it was one of those great experiences. Of course, I did not get on with Harry Saltzman, which is in every book or anyone who's ever written. And that's, that's okay because it, you need someone to hate on a movie. You really need someone. you got to have one prick that everybody knows is a prick. So you work harder to show him, right? So you're always under the gun. He's... He's never happy. And Peter Hunt, the great editor who was going to do it, edit it, was away for the first two weeks. And there was no editing. And Harry said, when Peter comes back, I'm going to show him the footage. He used to tell me. And if he doesn't like it, you're canned, right? 
he was that kind of guy, you know, easier, better than a sneaky guy. Right? You know, a villain, a villain is easy to deal with, right? Really easy. So Peter came back. I remember it was a Saturday. I was sitting at home or whatever. And uh, uh, the first call I got was from Peter. And Peter said, Sydney, I want to tell you what I've just said to Harry. And Peter was out. He was gay and out in that era. That's why what he's going to say was cute. He said, Harry, you don't fire Sidney Fury. Go up there and give him a big wet kiss. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. From then on, Harry complained, but he could do nothing because Peter loved it. And it was the only picture I've ever done, ever, that I was never in the cutting room while cutting was going on. Never. Isn't that funny? Remember, once we had a screening, and some guy at the screening would get titles, and he and I didn't get on. I don't remember why. Oh, I think he wanted to direct me at Chris Flowers. I mean, he says, what a piece of shit. And he left the screening room, and everyone else in the room said, uh-uh, this is a very unique, good movie, and they had an idea to switch some scenes. I don't remember what they were, a structured thing. And that was it. I mean, it was like... No matter what we did. Oh, and I hated the whole end sequence. I said that does that belongs in a Bond film. It does not belong. In, it was Harry's idea when he's in the box and all that. And but he had built the set at Pinewood, and he said, "There's no way we're not shooting it." But we made it work. You know, it gave it a, a bit of a climax. So you know, the thing of him coming out and he was in London all the time seemed to work. So I also learned in that picture. Don't always go by your own taste, you know? You can't. You, you just, you, you got to go sometimes with the, unquote, committee of filmmakers or artistic people, you know? Right, right. You were talking about how you have to have one prick on the on the set yeah. when it comes to this yeah. stuff. Uh, who was the prick on the Appaloosa? Uh, kind of, I don't think, I, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't anyone on the set. It was the studio whoever the studio was, okay? And so I'm trying to remember, because that I've never been asked that question. So I'll tell you what I think it was. I think it was the head production manager who had incredible power, right? Not even the head of production, but the, the, there was a, a physical guy who dealt with the crews and dealt with your schedule. And it would be like an executive production manager, whatever he was called, right? And and nothing wrong with the guy. You know, he was a decent man, but they had a way of doing things. So, example, this was 1965 in Hollywood. I'd already, in 1957 and 8, used an Aeroflex for a full movie. The Aeroflex was locked up in a camera car. On the set were these big Mitchells. We're out in Utah doing a western. I said, I want the area, I want the guy on a horse, and I want the cameraman operator, if he's willing, if not whoever's willing, to sit and get that kind of shot over the shoulder of Brando or or the double, right? And they had to call Hollywood to get permission to bring out the Aeroflex. The old-fashionedness of that was, was the thing that drove it. But if you thought I was going to say Brando, not true. Brando was difficult, but for other reasons. Brando was a great person, a great person, and a good human being. He was that little boy who never quite grew up. In other words, all the good characters that a young kid would have. His problem is he hated Universal, and he was only doing this to get rid of a contract. So I was caught in the middle of that. So 
you know, we had our fights, but the fact you could fight with him and he wouldn't storm off the set or say, get rid of this director or I don't come back out, you know, it was, I, I knew, I was smart enough to know what his problem was, but it, it was in the shooting aspect of it, it was, it was very, very difficult. And Russ, Russ Metty, Etty, who was an artist, a film artist, he had, you know, did pictures with Orson Welles and others. He was really a Hollywood product. He didn't like young upstart directors, right? And he would, in effect, say so. And he, he thought all scenes should be shot on a soundstage, including day scenes. Well, we, we did shoot some night scenes on there. That whole approach. We never got the script right, but that's not their their problem. It was just not to be. We sure fought hard. And that's where I learned after Icarus, just because you have a writer and you're working and working and working, or we had more than one writer, one quit in the middle of the night, Tim Bridges, I don't blame him. Just because you work hard doesn't mean you succeed. So it was it was a lesson, you know. It's part of a career and part of a thing. I was still in my uh, creative artistic um, mode, which critically they broke me off. Right. In other words, if people don't want things that are different, they'll accept difference if it's a popular film. But if it isn't, they'll use that as an excuse to get you. And I felt that style from my heart, you know? Not that I ever was a painter, but I just felt composition was what movies could be about. They certainly were in many cases with John Ford. Not as extreme as me, I know, but... I enjoyed Appaloosa, but it was a different, the studio system is something completely different. You can't even explain it. And that's when it was good. (laughs) 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 That's when it was really good. That's the joke. Now it's, we know it's tentpole. It's a tentpole industry today. So a few years after the Appaloosa, you made Lady Sings the Blues. How was that project? That was similar in many ways to how Icarus came about. Very, very similar. It had a script that a producer, Jay Weston, brought to me. Not a very good script, but nicely written. And I said, I think it's gone in the wrong direction. Let's get this writer and try to make it better. And he brought the guy in and paid him a few bucks and we we worked on it. Then he had talked about an actress called Diana Sands. And I said, no, she's not a singer. You need a singer who acts. And I've recently seen a variety show with Diana Ross acting comedy. I said, she's great. He saw the show, Kinescope, and said, well, she didn't do anything dramatic. I said, the comedy is tougher than the drama. She can act. Okay. He said, okay, let's get this done. And went to, he went to see Barry Gordy, who controlled her in many ways. He loved the idea. So we thought we had a pretty good script. And then he said, no, no, this is what's wrong. And then we'd have meetings. And I had written with Terrence McCoy that first script after his first script, the rewrite. And then a lot of people came in and wrote different scenes and things. And finally, we got it together. Wasn't right yet. I, once again, I did the old thing, let's shoot it in sequence. So if we have a great idea and writing is still going on, because the best writing goes on when you know the characters and they're acting. And you say, 
like we brought in Richard Pryor for one day to be this piano guy. So writing like on Ipcris continued daily, except I did a lot of improvisation, a lot. And some of the best scenes between her and Billy were improvised. But it followed the same thing. And while I love Barry Gordy, he took the role of uh, not prick, because not. But I don't know, the right word would be the guy who said, we've got to work harder, harder, harder. So he became the trainer and karate kid, make it better, make it better, make it better. So he wasn't a villain, okay? Because the taskmaster on Ipcris was Charles Cashin. And, and there was no real villain on Lady at all, except we wanted it to be good. And Barry was the guy that pushed us, pushed us, pushed us, and pushed Diana, who he knew well. It followed a similar, very similar pattern. When it was first seen, Peter Bart, who was then next to Evans, uh, head of production, uh, Peter went on to Variety, you know who he is, and he screened it uh, when we thought we were done. We didn't do much after. He said, he walked out, Barry Gordy and I were waiting in the outer room. He said, Barry, you just ruined Diana's career. <laughs> It's when they walk out and say, this is great, going to do 100 mil, you're in trouble. So that was lady. I imagine that you had a pretty good time with Billy D and Ann Richards since they went on to your next project. That's correct. I had great relationship uh, with both. They worked completely different, but they were actors to me, performers, you know, in the case. That picture, I hadn't even seen something the opposite, right, to lady. So, of course, we were all affected by French Connection and Marseille and all that. So I had an idea and then got Alan Trustman in, who had written Bullet or co-wrote, and Thomas Crown Affair. And then when it time to cast it, I just worked with Billy. Uh, I just thought, here's a good leading man. He's handsome. He's good. And there was a part. And in that day, you could... That whole movie shows you the difference. We shot in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, California, north of Seattle, Washington, and Marseille, France. Four places to move around. The whole movie cost $1.6 You couldn't even do that. There's no price. You couldn't. It's too cumbersome how they do it today. Indies could do it for 50 Gs. <laughs> you know, but that's, it's different. But he basically said the dialogue in the script, and in a few places he improvised, tiny, but controlled improvisation. The rehearsal, nothing when the camera was going. I think he sang a song at one point as he's uh, driving to do with a boat. He made up a little ditty, yeah. But basically, he stuck to everything, and it was... It's funny because I hadn't seen it since it was made. And Daniel said, you know, I've just run hit. There's a Blu-ray, and I, I really like it. Why don't you ever talk about it? I said, the Hollywood syndrome, it wasn't successful. That's how they get you here. He said, you better run it, and I ran it. And I got to tell you, I enjoyed it. I said, wow, this is interesting, you know? And remember, of course, it comes back to you, but it was it was fresh to me. So I said to Daniel, if nothing else happens out of the book, knowing you, I went back to see this. And it's happened on a couple of other movies where he said, you better see it. I say, hey, OK, yeah, not commercial, not successful. But at this point, it doesn't matter. Right. I was curious, it's such a diverse cast. What was it like working with so many different types of actors? Well, uh, it was wonderful. 
because there wasn't a second picture. Uh, once again, it was shot almost in sequence, not quite. I don't remember. We may have started in L.A. And then, I don't think so. I don't remember. But because it was about different kinds of people and they were different, it was, I remember thinking, this is fun, you know? This is working. This is real. When you're into it all, you just do it. I think there was a tiny bit of friction between Billy, who's very straight, who, no secret, was on drugs, right? I don't know what it was. I guess it was heroin. Was it? Coke, I guess. Coke. I don't know. But he never knew on the set. He indulged, ever. Always on time. A gentleman. No problem. Very good person. So I think Billy and him had their problems, but I only learned about this years later. I didn't know. But Marseille was a great city. We loved Marseille. And uh, an ugly city. Nothing beautiful about Marseille. But it had a feel. And... Uh, and I took high school French so I could use a few words, right? What was it like working with uh, Gwen Wells? Well, Gwen, uh, what, what she was. I mean, uh, I don't say she was a drug addict, but I'm sure she was on drugs. But uh, it was real, you know. She was just what she was playing herself. And uh, but that was just her in real life. That wasn't acting. <laughs> that was just how she talked and what she was. The whole point. She had a short life. Fun boy. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you about what it's been like making the Iron Eagle films? The first one, we shot half of it here, and then we went to Israel and finished it with certain scenes done in it and do here because uh, we couldn't get the Air Force to approve us here. That's why we went there, to get those F-16s. And that was an era right before... CGI, right? All those were real planes, as all the planes in Top Gun were real. After that, there were no real planes. They were all CGI planes. So we actually had a unit up in the air shooting planes. And, you know, it's just a kid adventure. And when you go to, when I went to the screenings in theaters, and it appealed to young boys and their fathers. <laughs> it was fun. It was great. You know, after a lady, you know, Chris and other things and the entity, all kinds of things. It was fun to have a, a rip-roaring adventure film. And the second one continued that way, but we kind of milked it dry by the fourth. But I enjoyed it. If you look at my career, it's very diverse, you know? didn't want to type myself because that's me. I love movies. I love all kinds of movies, you know? And right now, I'm writing one that's basically a um, comedy, an interesting little movie that I'm hoping to make for a hundred thousand dollars with four or five, right? The way kids make movies today. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Daniel's been very encouraging with digital. There's no reason not. You know, I haven't written in years. I functioned as a writer by acting out scenes, and they would write them up. But this, this one came from my gut, and I just said, I want to do it. And I found that the writing was more fun than the, than the directing, unfortunately. Because in the writing, you're on your own. And there's no one to say different until they read it. But it's, it's, it's a totally creative thing. It has to be a nightmare if you're doing it for someone else who comes back with notes and demands it be done. I get notes from various people, but I decide what I like in the notes and what I don't. So that's different, completely different. A lot of times people give you notes and don't understand the acting, the tone of the movie, 
certain things or whatever, or you can't. So I think the, the life of a professional screenwriter, horrendous. It's just got to be the, the worst. Um, I've got one more for you. I was curious uh, where you're at with uh, Pride of Lions. Oh, it's finished. Finished. And it'll be coming out, I think, in about two or three months. It's doing that new release thing. You open in a theater, and then you're on VOD, and then afterwards, DVD. for taking the time to talk to us and talking about his career, you know, all the various films that he's done and, and other terrific work. Now, Daniel, I know that you've been working on a book project on Mr. Fury and his work and was just wondering if you could tell us about the book and uh, how long you've been working on it. Sure. Uh, I, uh, I actually started the book. Um, well, I mean, my, my first introduction to, to Sidney Fury as a name was through a little ditty called uh, Superman for the Quest for Peace. Uh, when I was uh, a wee lad. And uh, even uh, back then, I noticed the names of, of directors uh, early on. It's, you know, uh, it, uh, I was a film nerd from the, from the get-go, in a sense. So, so I was like, and, uh, and back then, I thought that the original you know, Superman films, I thought all of them were fantastic films, and, and I, I liked four back then, if you look at it. And I, I, have, I have a soft spot for it still. My, my brothers and I joke that uh, Mark Pillow, who plays a uh, nuclear man at the, at the altar of his own wedding, would say, where is the woman? To kind of quote uh, nuclear man. But uh, we kind of we were raised on those films. And eventually, when I was 11 years old, my um, my kind of after-school activity was uh, sat perched in front of the television watching Bravo and uh, Encore. Bravo as it was before the advent of reality TV, and now you can't get anything on Bravo in terms of uh, old films. But uh, but I remember seeing uh, uh, the Luck of Ginger Coffee, the the Bofors Gun, uh, you know Charlie Bubbles with uh, Albert Finney, and uh, um, a bunch of uh, just a bunch of really esoteric films. Kind of probably the birth of my love of uh, esoteric uh, cinema, but. Uh, um, but around that time, I saw Icarus File uh, when I was 11 years old. It was probably one of the four films I saw from a very young age that, that uh, really left this indelible impression on me and made me consider film as a career versus a hobby. Uh, so, uh, um, and uh, it just never, and, and keep in mind, I was seeing Icarus File uh, again, pan and scanned, and I was missing a lot of the picture, but it's still the mood of the, of the piece and the, and the kind of the way that it. Uh, um, I don't know the way the the whole film just kind of operated just really cast a, a you know a total total spell over me. I got the I got the movie as a as a birthday present when I was twelve, I think. In the interim, I saw you know other films by him, including Lady Sings the Blues and and that old Paramount two VHS set and uh, um, other films by him, including uh, Hugh Levine on that old crappy eighties television transfer, or the the old uh, taping off the TV of that film. Uh, and I saw Icarus File again when I was uh, um, in my early 20s, when I first moved to New York. So it would have been about five years ago. I got the uh, the Region 2 disc 
which has all the extra features and, uh, and had the commentary track with with, with Sydney. It had the all the extra features, and it was my first time seeing it in widescreen. I mean, it was it was crazy because it was I was being blown away by it all over again. I was blown away the first time seeing it kind of compromised, and, uh, and I was blown away all over again seeing just how intensely unusual, particularly for, for, you know, 1964 when it was shot in 65 when it came out, just how much he went out on a limb in terms of the kind of visual component and, and the film was a was the front runner to win at Cannes that year, even though it was beat out by Richard Lester's The Knack uh, and How to Get It. It was uh, uh, it was the, the two one of the two official British invites, which also included uh, Lumet's The Hill. Uh, the Knack was its uh, uh, special invite, but uh, but it, it's but just considering the fact that you know usually this is like a espionage title. It's usually uh, Harry Saltzman who produced the James Bond movies, uh, produced. Uh, um, the uh, the Harry Palmer says as, as what he thought was going to be the poor man's bond uh, and wound up being the anti-bond, uh, thankfully. But it's very unusual that a that a, a genre exercise and within the within the spy realm uh, was this kind of uh, prized film within the kind of uh, art house community and with and it can it was uh, um, there's a quote by uh, you know you know Gabier, who was the French author who who thought that uh, the jury made a a horrendous, you know, decision to award the knack that year. Um, but uh, but then watching uh, other films of his in widescreen, and then and then you know, and doing kind of marathon where I was realizing that there's there's a, a kind of there are thematic threads to all these films. There's a the kind of visual thread to all these films. He's uh, he's, pretty, he's no bones about it. He, he to me he was an auteur. And uh, and uh, there was a kind of there was a total lack of anything written about him, and I was like, oh, wouldn't it be great if someone wrote a book about him and his career and his work and everything, a kind of monograph or a, a formal biography, whatever? And uh, and I was like, well, man, man, I can do an article, and you know, an, an article would be good. I can do an art. I have time to write. I, I have time to do that. And uh, so I wrote this kind of academic treatise, twenty some pages on the blog, and thanks to Margot Kidder actually, who was on. His last film, Pride of Lions, um, she saw the article somehow and said, "Hey, you know, Sydney, some guy wrote uh, this thing about you. You should check it out." And he's like, "No, no, I don't, I don't need, you know, I don't need anything like that." Eventually, uh, uh, he read it. He told me at a truck stop on the way to a location to shoot one day, and uh, I guess liked the writing a great deal. And and uh, um, and Paul Lynch, uh, who is his his best friend, uh, has been for a few decades. Met with him for lunch and said, you know, everyone has a book. You don't contact this guy. Go out and go out and find him. And you know, it's like you you you, uh, you you owe yourself. You owe your grandkids. You owe your your you know your your all your family. You know, do do something with it. So uh, so we got in, in touch with each other uh, and. Um, We've uh, we've had this uh, kind of amazing friendship as well as a kind of uh, camaraderie with writing the book, uh, which has been really uh, uh, rewarding. There's probably not a day that goes by where I don't where, where we don't touch base with, uh, with each other. But uh, um, but uh, and so uh, um, I, I got to writing, and he came to New York twice. I came to I went out to L.A. three times, and we were you know recording, and I was getting all these other interviews with people with whom we worked. Throughout uh, all these all these decades, and and uh, Pat, uh, I'm sorry, um, Paul Lynch uh, over lunch one day, he was like the kind of keeper of uh, of of Sydney's records because he keeps he's very proud of the fact that he keeps nothing in terms of uh, memorabilia. He said if, if my house is burning down, I take my wife and my tax records. Um, so uh, he 
So he Paul Paul uh, was kind of handed over all the all that he had saved for uh, as like you know Sydney's proxy memory keeper, and he goes, "What do you plan on doing with this once you're done?" I was like, "I don't know. I'll shop it around, you know, find somebody somewhere." He's like, "Well, I worked on a book about Raoul Walsh written by a woman named Marilyn Moss, and she got it published through Screen Classics. And and uh, if you want, I can put you in touch with Pat." To, um, a Gilligan who runs the press and, and, uh, and I was like, that would be great. Cause, uh, my model for this whole thing was, uh, what Nick Dawson did with, uh, the, the Hal Ashby book, uh, years ago in 2009. Uh, and, uh, and when I was first, uh, getting into Fury, uh, uh, hot and heavy, I was like, you know, wouldn't it be great if someone did a, a book like Dawson's except for Fury? Uh, so it was great that the, the exact same press, I was going to get in touch with the guy who ran that and it was going to be the same kind of, you know, Written under the same conditions, the same you know, kind of aegis, uh, you know, auspices, and uh, um, and uh, so Pat was very supportive, you know, from the from the get go, and you guys think it's a great idea. Write me, you know, a proposal, and we did all that all that stuff, and uh, and, the, and the press, uh, which has also been very helpful, picked it up, and uh, and we're, we're working away on it. So it's uh, it's been a very very rewarding time, and. Uh, um, and it's also been great just talking to the the people and the and the collaborators with whom he's worked over the years, um, and uh, you know it's and the, the book is uh, just chock full of interviews with uh, a lot of people that uh, um, a lot of stars and and uh, people that you know readers would know. Uh, so uh, um, you know it's been yeah it's been great. So where are you at with the project? Are you uh, first draft done, or what's the timeline for you? Uh, well, the first draft is due on May 15th. Uh, so, uh, you know, up until then, I'll be kind of working uh, um, under that uh, deadline. So uh, I'm currently, uh, I, I just scored an interview recently with Rick Natkin, who is the writer of Boys and Company C and uh, Purple Hearts and you know, a couple other films that Sydney had a hand in. So that filled in some gaps on Boys and Company C. So I've just been kind of uh, continuing to to uh, locate people to uh, get them to talk about what it was like to work with him. Everyone has some outrageous kind of story about having worked with him. He's just kind of a, um, you probably picked it up from your conversation with him. He's a real bundle of energy and uh, pretty much has been in his entire career. He's, like I said, he's this element of uh, kind of a lot of dangerousness about him where you don't know often what, what he's going to do or what he's going to say next. Even anybody, even though everyone has loved working with him and a lot of the people he has an entourage uh, kind of a people who have worked with him over and over again. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, watching a Fury film is like watching, uh, um, you know, like watching a Woody Allen movie and seeing like, you know, certain names like uh, Santa Laquasto or whatever, you know, people whose names you see over and over again in the credits. Uh, so he's kept uh, a, a lot of the same people throughout the years as crew members and as cast members. So, uh, they have, I mean, the, just the sheer number of, of stories that uh, I've picked up from them, them and, and also from, from Sydney himself, whether it's about working with Marlon Brando or working with uh, Frank Sinatra or Robert Redford or any of these guys. That he's, you know, it's a long and uh, illustrious career of, uh, with a lot of names that, uh, uh, that he's had the, the pleasure and privilege of working with and vice versa. But that and just, you know, writing in a kind of, um, you know, analytical and historical sense about a man's work and putting the kind of puzzle pieces uh, together has been rewarding seeing because I, I, they're one of three major themes that kind of emerge with each film, at least each of the major films in, in that bulk of his career. And also just catching a director who's worked within Canadian independent cinema at its earliest outset, you know, in the late 1950s when there was no Canadian film industry whatsoever, 
British New Wave, kind of the tail end, the uh, fall of the, of the studio system, the beginning of the new Hollywood, which I think Foss and Halsey is a, uh, an example of that, that type of a, an effort, going into kind of um, 80s blockbusters with Iron Eagle, then going into the kind of direct-to-video market. It's been uh, um, a really fantastic and a really out there career in that, you know, you, you look at uh, Leather Boys or any of the kind of uh, kitchen sink dramas he made in England, and then you look at, like, Ladybugs, and then, or you look at, like, Iron Eagle, uh, whatever, you know, which whatever one you want, or any of the, you know, any of the films he's made uh, from the 90s onwards. Like, did the same director do both of these movies? How is that possible? And at the same time, you notice a couple things. But, uh, but yeah, just the kind of the, the evolution he's, he's undergone since uh, the, the earliest parts of his career has been really fascinating to capture the kind of dualities of like you know him as a as a kind of uh, uh, you know a list director in the in the 70s after releasing the blues, which was a tremendous uh, box office and, and critical hit. Um, you know, it, it, uh, he was a real a real a lister uh, for a time, uh, and ultimately shot down by a couple movies that that didn't do so well. But yeah, just kind of capturing that the evolution he's undergone in the in the time that he's been working uh, has been really really fascinating as a writer who's who's capturing it. It's uh, really really amazing. I have to say, when I posted that we were going to be talking to to Sydney on the Facebook group, the one film that really got a lot of attention was The Entity, which I have not yet seen. Yeah. A couple uh, entity things that happened to me personally is that I was at Lincoln Center uh, last year. Uh, I, was, I forget what I was catching. I think it was just a gigolo on a print, uh, the, the David Bowie German movie. Uh, but uh, there were guys next to me in the audience, and they were talking about, you know, oh, uh, you know, they were talking about directors and the fact that Alton's Nashville is coming out. I was like, oh, what about Sidney Fury? I couldn't believe my ears that, that the people were talking about, you know, Sidney Fury next to me. And, uh, um, and uh, it's like, oh, yeah, the entity, they should bring the entity back again. And, and, uh, and after a while, they were talking about it so much that I, I mean, you know, you just, you, I couldn't resist. Uh, and saying like, hey, I'm I'm writing a book about Sidney Fury, and uh, actually, it's one of the guys had read uh, the original article I posted about about <laughs> Sidney's films at blog. So I was like, you're the guy, like, oh yeah, you read that's, that's great. So it's funny when these things happen. But then after that screening, Gavin Smith, who runs Film Comment, was there, and I was saying like, yeah, you, Lincoln Center should should do a, a retrospective of his work. And uh, the first thing he said, well, the entity is is a masterpiece. He didn't even say like, oh yeah, you know, Sidney Fury. He didn't. The first thing he said was, entity is a masterpiece. And uh, I was I was really struck by how direct his that uh, that comment was. Uh, that the first thing he thought of when I said the name was the entity. But it's it's really is a highly regarded. If, if you've seen um, Martin uh, Scorsese named uh, uh, the entity as the fourth best horror film of all time, uh, he had a list of eleven. And uh, uh, it was uh, the, the entity was number four, I believe, and placed he placed it, I guess, above The Shining and uh, um, was the other outright, oh yeah, and above above Psycho, um, which is uh, re- really saying something. It's a really uh, again, I mean, I'm, I keep on using this word, but it's the only word I can think of is ballsy. There's a lot of gumption to you know shoot that film the way that it's shot, the kind of you know uh, stylization of that film and the kind of uh, I know. I mean, it's it's easy to take that film in the wrong direction with it with a plot, you know, synopsis like that. Oh yeah, a woman is raped by a ghost over and over again. That's that's hard to be, to make make that delicate. Uh, but uh, what makes the film really interesting is that uh, that as a director, you know, he, and Barbara Hershey's performance is amazing, and 
and uh and you know she she uh, um and he makes it just a very strong sympathetic character and also the men in the film are kind of uniformly creepy so you have this kind of strong central female character and uh surrounded by these uh these kind of uh you know whatever these men who are you know many of them are kind of up to up to no good or, or they're kind of uh, working against uh, getting her really getting her help as opposed to just thinking it's all in her head so it's a it's a very it's a very very fascinating film I think uh, so I highly recommend it and I think it's uh, I think a lot, a lot of people I think uh, believe that that's his best film outside of it Chris File and, and uh, Poison Company C yeah that was one of many films uh, you know Rob you talk about how Cinema Detours gave you a lot of movies to check out that that was one of those where I was reading Kayla Janice's book and it was like, oh, geez, another movie that I have to see because she wrote a lot about that, a lot about um, Shulowski's possession. So it's like, OK, a lot of these things moved right to the top of my need to track this down list. And I have sadly not yet tracked down the entity. But based on that and based on this conversation, I will be doing that very soon. We're going to take another break and play a preview from next week's show. I want a show that will make headlines. The Huxtables, Cosby, a genius, revolutionary, but we can't go down that road again. The network does not want to see Negroes on television unless they are buffoons. Have you ever thought about just quitting? I have a contract. The only way I get out of that is if I get fired, and that is what I intend to do. I know you are familiar with menstrual shows, variety shows, like in Living Color. Right, 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 that was dope. Man, tan, the new millennium menstrual show. We're going to need a little more money for this. This could be bigger than Friends, Ally McBeal, even my boys Amos and Andy. Yeah. You're putting white actors in black face? We're using black actors with blacker faces. This fall. Right on, man. Yeah, great show. You won't believe what's coming to your television. Sleepany and Mantan are lazy and unemployed. But we are certainly not saying anything about the entire African-American community. What's sweeping the nation. And what's coloring. The way you see the world. Yo, we can't let this injustice go by, man. Not this time, man. You know what I'm saying? Nah, man. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? I don't want anything to do with anything black for at least a week. That's right, we're back and we're talking about Spike Lee's controversial film about race in the media, Bamboozled. We'll be joined by my good friend, 
J. Scott Smith, and he'll join us in the booth for the first time, so treat him well, and to discuss the film as part of our celebration of Black History Month as it continues, so you do not want to miss that one. But before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest host, Daniel Kramer. Dan, you know, we've talked about the book and everything that you've been working on. What's the best place for people to go to keep up with your work and basically everything you do? The, the blog, which I haven't written on uh, at all, really, since the book uh, got started, so you know, you're not going to find anything new there, but uh, confluencefilm.com, C-U-N-F-L-U-E-N-C-E-F-I-L-M.com. I, I, I make films as well. That's kind of, uh, um, you know, that's uh, where I'm coming from, but I also write a great deal about uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, ephemeral films and esoteric films and films that are really under the radar. Like I said, I haven't written on it in well over a year at this point because I've been really um, uh, preoccupied by, you know, working on the book. But, uh, but yeah, that's that's uh, where to keep up with uh, with everything, including my actual filmmaking work as well as the film, film scholarship work. Well, very cool. We will be sure to link over to that over at our website, projection-booth.com. So I want to thank you again, Daniel, for coming on the show. And I want to thank everyone for taking the time to listen. So feel free to pay it forward by spreading the word about the projection booth and all the good stuff that we're doing here. Stay cool.
Hi, I'm Billy D. Williams. Now, you and your family can relive all of the excitement with the Mel Gibson commemorative Grant Plate Collection. Order now. And each month you'll receive a beautiful hand-fired plate featuring one of Mel's most outrageous outbursts, including you offend my masculinity, my being, my soul. And you call me a sinner? You're a moving violation. But how about your logic sucks because you are a mentally deprived idiot. And the classic, I deserve to be first before the jacuzzi. I'll burn the house down, but me first. Each plate is made of 100% unbreakable polycarbonate. Perfect for hurling at your loved ones again and again. Bitch. Order now, and we'll throw in a free Oksana Collagen lip phone so you can record your own private conversations. So what are you waiting for? You stupid pieces of...